We were made for wholeness that can only be found in union with our Creator. But since the beginning, we have embarked on an endless quest to satiate our desires with a never-ending array of disordered loves. We have attached ourselves to pleasure and relationships and work, but they do not satisfy. What if the truth is that no created thing will ever fulfill us like the creator of all things can? No created thing can bear the weight of our deepest hopes or the weight of our soul's longings. Only one can do that. All the rest is counterfeit. guys good to see your faces this morning I have to say I already went and fixed my face once and then I was crying again so thank you worship people for all the tears no they're good tears and I'm glad to cry them with you all today it's a beautiful day of worship and authenticity as usual and so I'm grateful to have you all here so today is week two of our counterfeit series and this one is going deep people it's going deep so I hope that you're ready to dig in um, I'm going to invite you today to take a journey. We're taking a journey today. I invite you to go with me because if we, if we just kind of skim over the deep stuff, the truth of this, this part of this message isn't going to land in the same way. So come along on the journey because it's going to be worth it, okay? So last week, Benjamin did a masterful job of introducing our series and teaching us about Moses' encounter at the burning bush and of the authentic presence of God that he met there at the burning bush and that continued on the journey with Moses his whole life. And we learned that God's true gift to us is this authentic presence, right? It's the presence that humanity separated from in the Garden of Eden. We talked about that separation that happened. And it's the presence that every human heart Every human heart is longing to return to. The void that we feel as we experience life in this world is that longing to return to wholeness with the authentic presence of our creator, right? And so in burning bushes and pillars of fire and later in his son Jesus and in the Holy Spirit that came, God's gift to us is the thing that we most long for, which is his presence, okay? Even the name that he gives to himself, Yahweh, means I am. He is the God who is presence. The God who is presence. And so when we're talking about this counterfeit series then, what we're talking about is that anything we use to fulfill that longing outside of the true presence of God in our lives is a counterfeit. Is a counterfeit. And therefore an idol, right? It's a substitute for what we are made to long for. And therefore... It's idolatry, it's sin. Tim Keller says that idols are created things that you are looking to, to give you what only a creator can give. Created things that you're looking to, to give you only what a creator can give. And last week we learned about the essence of sin is, is the disordered loves, right? The disordered loves when our love first isn't to God, it's sin, right? And we talked about that. So today we're going to pick up Moses' story again, 
And in our conversation of this counterfeit series, we're going to follow the story of Moses and follow the story of the nation of Israel as they escaped the captivity of the Egyptians. And while the story begins with Moses encountering God at the burning bush, what we find is this narrative of this people, right, who are constantly finding themselves doubting the authentic presence of this God, right? And they're constantly turning to counterfeits. So today we're going to talk about the story of the Ten Commandments, which is the classic Moses story, right? And when I began to engage this story and write this message, I thought this message was going to be something completely different, to be honest with you guys. I thought it was going to be, let's look at these Ten Commandments. Look, it says, have no other gods before me. It says, make no idols. It says, separate a day and keep it holy for me. Look at all these ways that God is pointing the Israelites away from the counterfeit and towards the true, right? And that was going to be what this message was about. And those things are all true, and that is part of what the Ten Commandments is. But we found, we find when we really read these chapters of this story, we find a truth that's so much bigger and so much deeper, and one that I I hadn't read this way before. So that's the journey we're going on today. There might be a few twists and turns along the way, so get ready and pay attention, all right? Because we're about to hear a story about idols and veils and possibly the most amazing athlete in the entire history of humanity, and certainly in the Bible. Okay, so, Ten Commandments. So basically what happens after Moses meets God at the burning bush, he goes back to Egypt, and he says to Pharaoh, that I'm going to give you the very abbreviated version. I'm sure most of you know the story, but we're going to abbreviate it anyways. Moses goes back to Egypt, and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh's like, no. And so then God brings these ten plagues upon Egypt, and all the plagues are against some of the Egyptian gods, and they're to show the power of the one true God, and Pharaoh keeps saying, no, no, no. Finally, we get to the last plague, which is the angel of death, kills the firstborn child in each home, and Pharaoh's finally like, all right, this God is for real. Let the Israelites go, right? So Moses takes the Israelites. They go out into the desert. They come to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's heart gets hard, and he chases after them. The army comes to the Red Sea. God parts the sea. The armies and Pharaoh is drowned in the sea after the Israelites pass through. And then they're wandering in the desert for a couple months before they come to the mountain of God. The mountain of God, Mount Sinai, is what it's called in this part of the scripture, right? So they've wandered around the desert for a couple months already, right? And even though they have this cloud of smoke and this pillar of fire to guide them through the desert, they're still seriously doubting this God. They're doubting this God that Moses has, their God, it's their God, but they're doubting him. They're doubting his presence with them because they're starving in the desert. And so he sends different food and water when Moses hits rocks and all these kinds of things, provides enough for them, and finally brings them to his mountain, Mount Sinai. So when they reach the mountain, Moses climbs up the mountain of God. And God says to him, if the people will follow my decrees, I will send my presence with you and I will bless you. So then Moses climbs back down the mountain and he tells the people, if you will follow God's decrees, he will send his presence with us and he will bless us. And the people say, yes. So then, I'm not kidding you. You guys can read all this. I wasn't going to read 24 chapters of Exodus, but this is what happens. Moses climbs back up the mountain again and tells God that the people agree. So then God says that he's going to come visit the people. He's going to come and visit in a big cloud of smoke, okay? And he tells Moses about it. And he says, when I come and visit the people, they will hear my voice and they will trust you. They will trust you, Moses, because they will see my cloud and hear my voice. So 
Moses climbs back down the mountain and he tells all the people to get ready because God is coming. And they have three days to prepare themselves and get everything ready and cleansed for the arrival of the presence of God. And here's what happens in Exodus 19, starting in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. Moses is doing a lot of climbing up and down on this mountain. If you haven't noticed that at this point in the story yet, so pay attention to that. All right. So God's come, the whole mountain's on fire, it's smoke and fire, and then God says to Moses, climb back up the mountain again. So Moses climbs back up the mountain again, and now he's having a conversation with God about who can and who can't come up the mountain. There's this holiness that shrouds this mountain that is separating the people from actually experiencing the authentic presence of God in the way that Moses is. So they have this whole conversation about who is allowed and who can withstand the awe that apparently is grasping these humans in the presence of God because I don't think they're quite sure all of them are going to like survive the awe that's happening to them when they see it. So Moses, let's see, did he go back or up or down here? Okay, go, Moses goes back down the mountain to tell the people who can come up the mountain, okay? So that's what's happened now. And you know, when I was reading this, I'm like, man, Moses is going up and down this mountain. I don't, even, I don't even count how many times. Somebody who has some time, you guys can count how many times he goes up and down the mountain in this 14 chapters of Exodus. But it's a lot. And I was remembering our study of this vertical morality versus horizontal morality. And this way that, that when God first came to people in the Old Testament, it was vertical. You had to climb. You had to strive. You had to achieve. You had to follow the rules in order to ascend the mountain of God and be in his presence. And that's what Moses is doing over and over. And then he comes back down to the people to tell them what to do so that maybe one day they can climb the mountain too. That's the old covenant. That's not the covenant we live in. Thank God that's not the covenant we live in. But that's what we're seeing here, right? So... At this point in the story is when Moses finally gets the Ten Commandments. We kind of just hear it like he went to the mountain, he climbed up the mountain, and God gave him the Ten Commandments. No, no. There was like four or five trips up and down the mountain before the Ten Commandments were finally bestowed. And we all know those pretty well. No other gods before me. No idols. Don't misuse my name. Honor your father and mother. Set aside the Sabbath one day a week. No killing. No adultery. No lying. No stealing. No jealousy. That's the Ten Commandments, right? And they were the beginning of God's rules for living in this covenant that he had with Israel, right? And in, in their way, each of these commandments directs the heart of the, of the nation of Israel away from the counterfeit gods, which were everywhere in those days. Every nation had their own gods, right? Away from the counterfeit gods and towards the one true God, right? But there's more to understand in this story than what these laws meant to these people. So let's keep going, okay? 
What's happening here is the same story that we see over and over of God longing for authentic relationship with us. It's why he created us, right? And so over and over we see God trying to establish this authentic relationship with humanity. And so in this chapter of the story, he's establishing this law code and saying, if you can abide by these laws, then you can commune with me. But what do we find? It doesn't work very well, does it? Well, we find a lot of people dying in their efforts to abide by these laws. It seems to end in death, and it seems to end with people basically terrified by this authentic presence of God, which is supposed to be the thing that our souls are longing for, right? We don't have time to unpack all of that today, but we do know where the story changed, and that's when he sent Jesus, right? He sent his authentic presence in a way that could commune with humanity, and he left his spirit with us. So that's the end of the story. But right now, we're still with Moses. We're still in the old law code. So do you know what happens after God gives Moses the Ten Commandments? I think we think that, like, he comes down from the mountain, and, oh, look, the people built an idol, and that's, the story goes on. No, no. Before that happens, there's 14 more chapters of more commandments, more rules, more laws, this is how you build the altars, and this is how you have social justice, and this is the promise of my presence, and all of these things, right? And in the midst of these 14 more chapters of laws and commandments, this happens. Exodus 24. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. Well, we got a few people climbing the mountain now, so this is exciting. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, stay there, and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out, and Moses climbed up the mountain of God. There he goes again. I'm telling you, he's like the most amazing athlete in the Bible. I would like to know how big this mountain is. I would like to know how far up he's climbing up and down this thing, but it's making me tired. Okay, but we see here when this happens, 70 people go up and they experience the authentic presence of God. So this is like a victory for the people, right? They've experienced the presence of God on the holy mountain. So then Moses goes higher up the mountain, past where anybody can see, and he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And all these tablets are being written, and more rules are being given. Plans for the Ark of the Covenant, and for the courtyard, and for anointing oil, and for clothing for the priest, and incense, all of these things. This is the time when the, the Jewish people establish all of these things, right? So next week, Pastor Benjamin's going to tell us what the Israelites did down on the ground for 40 days and 40 nights when they thought that Moses had like disappeared and gone on. But I'll give you a hint, it's not good. And I'll give you another hint, this is not Moses' last trip up this mountain, just telling you. Okay, but for today, we're gonna pay attention to something else. In Exodus 34, this is after the 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, this is what happens. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. 
But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands of the Lord had given on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. All right, we're going to slow down here, okay? What is with this veil thing? What is with that? Why did he do that? I told you we're going on a journey with Moses. This is where we get to the twist in the road, okay? There are several reasons that we're studying this story in our discussion of counterfeits. First of all, it's important on its own, right? Because we can see God longing. We can see God trying to work it out with humanity for him to be able to experience this authentic, for them to be able to experience his authentic presence, for him to be able to experience authentic relationship, right? And we can see that it's everything to him. It's everything to him. And that's why he warns again and again against other gods because other gods are taking the place of authentic relationship with him. And so this story is important in its own right as we study the history of God and the history of humanity. But all of these instructions that he's giving them, all of these laws, all of these commandments, the ark, the tabernacle, it was so that they could take his presence with them, right? So they wouldn't have to climb this mountain, but so that they could take his presence with them as they went. Unfortunately, Israel does not do a good job honoring the law code, right? And it turns to death over and over again. We're going to see a lot of death if we continue to study this story. And Israel finds an idol or a counterfeit to turn to. And they turn away from the God who is presence, the God who is giving them a way to take his presence with them to the lesser loves and the lesser gods. And it causes their destruction again and again, right? So that's one reason that we're studying this story. But there's another reason that we're studying this story. And we're going to go back to this veil that Moses put over his face, right? Let's read what the Apostle Paul has to say about this veil, because it might not be what you think. 2 Corinthians 3. Yet, that old system of law that led to death, that would be the, the Moses law, began with such glory that people could not bear to look at Moses' face. For as he gave them God's law to obey, his face shone out with the very glory of God, though the brightness was already fading away. Shall we not expect far greater glory in these days when the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the plan that leads to doom was glorious, much more glorious is the plan that makes men right with God. In fact, that first glory as it shone from Moses' face is worth nothing at all in comparison with the overwhelming glory of the new agreement. So if the old system that faded into nothing was full of heavenly glory, the glory of God's new plan for our salvation is certainly far greater, for it is eternal. Since we know that this new glory will never go away, we can preach it with great boldness, and not as Moses did, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not see the glory fade. Pause here. I thought he was putting this veil over his face because it was like too scary for the people. Like, oh, look, he was in the presence of God and it's glowing and that's so scary. So I'm going to cover it up with his veil so I don't like frighten the people. No. He put 
the veil over his face so that the Israelites could not see the glory fade away. Not only Moses' face was veiled, but his people's minds and understanding were veiled and blinded too. Even now, when the scripture is read, it seems as though Jewish hearts and minds are covered by a thick veil because they cannot see and understand the real meaning of the scriptures. For this veil of misunderstanding can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are blind, and they think that obeying the Ten Commandments is the way to be saved. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord from his sins, the veil is taken away. The Lord is spirit who gives them life. And where he is, there is freedom from trying to be saved by keeping the laws of God. But we Christians have no veil over our faces. We can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him. Did you hear that? I feel like there's a question here that we need to pause to consider for a moment. This veil. Under the old covenant, the vertical morality, the covenant where one had to climb up and down mountains to get to God, the veil was so that people didn't see the glory fading because the presence of God was not indwelt into the people. It was not indwelt into Moses. He experienced that presence only when he got close enough to God, only when he climbed high enough, only when he went far enough. Then he would receive the glory and his face would glow. So he put the veil over so the people would think, that the presence of the Lord was with him, but it wasn't really. Not in the way that it's with us, right? The veil was a counterfeit. The veil was manufacturing a sense of the presence of God. It was manufacturing that sense of the presence. And then what does he say about this veil for those who look back to the Old Testament? The way that they view the scripture becomes that same sort of veil, becomes that same sort of counterfeit, a counterfeit of understanding the true presence of God. What is he saying here? That the worship of scripture itself apart from the God who is presence can also be a counterfeit, can also be an idol. But then it says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord from their sins, the veil is taken away. Meaning, when we turn away from our counterfeit gods, whatever they are, the idols of our own making, we find him. We find Jesus. And we find freedom because his spirit lives in us. And our faces become mirrors that reflect his presence. We don't have to climb any mountain to receive that, right? That's what we're really learning from this story of Moses. There is a new way, right? But as we're talking about counterfeits, I think, I don't think I've ever read these verses in this context before to see like even Paul is saying an understanding of the scripture without the God who is presence is an idol. It is, right? It can become one. Or our engagement with community or any number of things can become an idol, can become a veil that separates us from the authentic presence of God. So here's the question for us today. And we're all looking at this question from different places and different stories. But the question is, what counterfeit, what idol is veiling your experience of the God who is presence? What is veiling your experience 
of being a mirror that reflects the glory of God in a brighter way than Moses' face ever did. And then, what would it look like to take that veil away? What would it feel like to drop the counterfeit and experience only the real? David Foster Wallace was an American author. He didn't subscribe to any faith system. He was an agnostic. But he spoke these words at a commencement speech right before his death. And we're going to read them together. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. This is being said from close to an atheist. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're not evil or sinful. They're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving of worship of self. But here's the heartbreaking thing about what he says. He gets it right. That's all right. Except for the part about it not being sinful, because I do think it's sinful. But he gets it right in that all of these false gods and idols will eat you alive. But he doesn't make it to the complete picture of truth. Because he says that anything besides some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship will eat you alive. But the truth is that those things will eat you alive too. Some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship? Yeah, that will eat you alive too, right? Religion, apart from the authentic presence of Yahweh, the God who is presence, will also eat us alive. Pledging our life to a creed or a doctrine or a set of beliefs or a church or a community or a leader means pledging our life to the veil, that shrouds us from the authentic presence of God. 
It means pledging our life to a counterfeit of the thing that is most true. So let's read this passage in Hebrews now. We've read it before, but maybe today with a little bit deeper understanding of what the author of Hebrews was saying, let's read it. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things remain. Do you hear the truth that God is speaking to our hearts today? Every idol will break your heart. Every idol will break your heart because all of creation will be shaken and removed. All created things, shaken and removed, and only unshakable things remain. Our bodies, our relationships, our marriages, our children, our church, our scriptures, our community. These things are shakable because these things are created. Right? These things are counterfeits, veils, for the authentic presence of God. And they will eventually die. They will eventually die. The God who is presence is the only unshakable thing we know. It is the only unshakable thing we know. So then, what are we to do? What are we to do? That's a really hard truth. I don't really particularly love thinking that everything that I know and love will die. Like, I don't like this teaching. It's hard. What are we to do? The veils that separate us from the authentic presence of God, the idols, the counterfeits. We probably know what to do with the dark and evil things, right? We'll walk away from them and walk towards the light. That seems like what we could do with them. But what do we do with the good things? What do we do with the good things that, if we are not careful, can turn into our ultimate things? What do we do with those? I've struggled with this question, for sure. 
I have struggled with the temptation to make good things ultimate things and to put too much of my joy or my personhood into my friendships, into my work, into my being a pastor, into my element community. And I have felt like I might never forgive either myself or God if I lost these things, right? And if I feel that way, then they are in the counterfeit place. That is the sin of disordered loves, right? So what do we do with all of those good things, the good created things? Here's the invitation that God is giving us today. The good created things cannot be our idols, but they can be our altars. They cannot be our idols, but they can be our altars. Where we meet with the authentic presence of God. So what if instead of viewing our marriage or our friendships as places to draw our worth, we view them as places where we can engage the authentic presence of God because he is there in those places? Or what if we view our work not as a place to define our value in the world, but as a place to meet the authentic presence of God? as an altar, not an idol, but an altar, right? Even our experience here at Element in authentic community, it is good, and it is beautiful, and it is uncommon, and it is the way that we are meant to live. But we can't draw our value and our worth from our participation in this community. That would make it an idol, but it can be an altar. It can be an altar where we meet the authentic presence of God. The band can come up. We're going to sing one last beautiful song. But here's the thing about altars, guys. They are holy. These altars are holy. Our marriages, our friendships, our scriptures, our community, our work, these places can all be holy and beautiful and life-giving and good. So my encouragement today, when we find ourselves leaning into that place where we feel veiled, veiled from the presence of God indwelling us and changing us, I ask that we look at these things as altars. Because if we view them as altars, we will meet him and the veil will be removed. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your truth today, for your challenge today, for your wisdom today. And I ask that you would do your good work in each heart, that you would allow us to take away whatever we need, whatever truth we need, whatever conviction we need, whatever clarity we need. God, in each of our stories, I pray that you would give it to us. And in those places where we feel veiled from you, God, can we meet you instead? Can you take away the veil? Can you take away our dependence on the lesser things and help us to bow down at an altar of your presence? Because in those places, redemption can't help but come. God, help us run to you today. We want you, the authentic, real you, the glory that is greater than the glory on the mountain, the glory that is within us the way you intended it to be. In your name we pray.